Welcome to Hearthside Salons, talks and conversations to feed your creative fire. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you a guest worth listening to. This is our first episode and I wanted to launch it with someone near and dear to my heart. Double Emmy winner and Sesame Street puppeteer, builder, and writer Liz Hara shares how she got where she is, what it takes to pursue a creative career, and the necessity of failure. I find her incredibly inspiring, and I hope you do too. Hello and welcome to Hearthside Salons, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I wanted to start these because I've always had, you know, I want people to share their ideas and their creative process. And I've always been enamored of um, things like Gertrude Stein's Salons, Literary Paris, the Golden Age. Like it just sounded like the coolest freaking thing ever to be able to go to a place where you were in someone's apartment and they had all these cool people that were artists and writers and thinkers and, and you could just talk to them and everyone exchanged ideas and like what an amazing thing. So um, let's just do that now. Why, why not revive it? We just, uh, we'll have to have our little champagne flutes and toast virtually, because I'm sure they were drinking lots of champagne and probably absinthe at the time. So um, I'm very excited for our first guest to be the wonderful Liz Hara. Um, Liz, well, thank you. Thank you Welcome. Um, thank you. So Liz and I, we go, we go back to 2013 when she came to our first um, the first time we moved our writing program to Orvieto in Italy, um, we'd been doing it in, in another town and we moved it to this new town. And Liz was one of the first people that was there. And we just like, I don't know, hit it off by the time we left, we were like, did not want to leave your presence. So it's been super fun to watch you um, come, like move forward in your career. And now you lived in New York when I met you and now you live here in LA. Um, and you've done so many cool things. So let's start talking about it. Well, actually, I think that Orvieto was such a like big jumping off point for me. I think that was such an incredible experience. And I think that actually was the sample that I had to give uh, when my now manager approached me uh, was the script that I wrote there. So that kind of does feel like the beginning of my writing career. So thank you very much. You're so welcome. Um, I'll take credit for nothing um, that I did. But <laughs> yeah, because so you left. So how, how much writing had you done before that? Um, yeah, let's see. Before 2013, I had written, uh, I'd been writing stuff for puppets theatrically. Um, so I had a couple full length, well, I had one full length theater show and then a bunch of, uh, puppet slam pieces. Um, and then had like written maybe a spec or two, but I think, uh, Curiosities, the project I was working on in Orvieto, I think that was my first, uh, original pilot. I still love that script and I'm still angry that it hasn't been made. Um, <laughs> it just, it so should be made. So, you know, maybe someday. Um, I don't know if, do you want to throw a log line out there? 
Uh, it is a, it's actually very different from what I normally write. It is a historical drama about a black circus owner in uh, like 1880 New York City um, and his family, his self-made family of uh, circus freaks, essentially. Kind of a P.T. Barnum-esque character. Um, yeah, political intrigue and... Yeah, because it was based in, in reality, right? With the, uh, I never knew about Tammany Hall until I read your script. And that's when I started yep. learning about that. Yeah, uh, played with a lot of historical elements and a lot of, uh, ideally there would be a lot of real life inspiration for stories. Yeah, yeah, it was very exciting. So then um, you won Austin TV Pitch Fest off of that, right? Uh, I won ATX actually off of the a comedy script that I had called Bully. And so my background actually is I started as a puppet builder and puppeteer um, and worked for Sesame Street um, and then started writing my own work just to perform with puppets. Um, so the script that I won the ATX pitch competition was a puppet pilot that was, uh, it's called Bully, and it's essentially a puppet Teddy Roosevelt being a dick to Taft. It's hilarious. It's a fun project. Yeah, I love that. I love that too. So what is it, um, is there, would you say, any difference writing for puppets versus writing for real people? <laughs> what do you have to um, keep in mind as you craft your dialogue and stuff? I like to, there's that great Ginger Rogers saying, like, she did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards and in heels. I think that's kind of what writing for puppets is. Really? Um, yeah, because it's, you have to do all the basic narrative structure, all the character stuff, but then physically there's just both a lot of different freedoms and limitations. Like you can't just have a puppet grabbing a pair of scissors and cutting up a piece of paper. Like you honestly have to think, what is every little physical movement and are they capable of it? Um, and then also you really need to kind of justify why you're using puppets in a script. So you really want to make sure it's not just to, we call them like lollipops talking. Uh, so it can't just be a boring two shot. It's got to be like something really physical uh, because otherwise why bother? Yeah, like something a person couldn't just do, right? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, they can also like play with the laws of physics and they're so great in terms of world building. So there's so much more that you can do and you really should if you have the opportunity. So what, like what, you're a kid, what draws you to puppets? What, what is it about puppets that makes you go, that's where I'm going with this? Um, for me, like I just have always been a very playful, goofy person um, and just kind of creating worlds again is something that is so it's the wheelhouse of puppets like whatever 
bananas world you can think of, you can make a puppet show of it. Like you can, I've seen plays that are just about blankets with their own personalities or, you know, you're not even limited to like outer space or underwater, which you can do on stage, but just, uh, just truly anything, any inanimate object that you want to give a life and personality to, you can do that with puppets. So I've always found that just the most amazing thing. Um, but I also personally got into it just because I started as a builder. Like I was uh, interning with local theaters when I was in high school in their props department, building my own puppets. Um, so then I guess that was kind of my draw. And like, I guess there's a little bit of control freak in the puppet stuff because when you do your own puppet shows, like you get to build, you get to perform, you get to write. So everything that is in your head, you get to realize. Um, that is exciting as a creator. I hadn't, hadn't thought about that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Do you, does it color your worldview in terms of like, you walk through the world and you see that jar behind you and think, oh, this could be a puppet for this. Or like, do you see things in those terms? Uh, I think actually a lot of puppeteers do that. Like we kind of see faces everywhere. And there's a joke, like you can't hand a puppeteer anything without making them like, <laughs> uh, so a lot of puppeteers are annoying to hang out with. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I think we do kind of ascribe personalities to things just to entertain ourselves pretty regularly. That's awesome. It's um, dorky. <laughs> well, so like, cause I know that we've talked about creativity goes way back in the roots. Like so many of us have this moments when you were a kid, when something inspired you or when you thought I want to do that or I can do that. So like, tell me about like when you were little like what was being creative for you? What, 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 what was like art before we knew to call it art? <laughs> uh, so actually my parents were really amazing about exposing us to the arts when I was growing up. Um, and I grew up in Minneapolis, which is a really great city for that. Um, and in particular, they, had, they have uh, the Children's Theater Company in Minneapolis and we had season tickets to that. So I remember shows that I saw in kindergarten, they did a production of Bartholomew Cubbins, the 500 hats of Bartholomew Cubbins, uh, the Dr. Seuss story. Okay. And like they use this trick that is, uh, what's it called, check black. It's based on a form of puppetry where it's just like a trick of light and character. People are dressed in dark outfits and you just, they're completely invisible. So hats were appearing out of nowhere on this little kid's head. And it was just pure magic. And I remember seeing that and just knowing that there was some kind of trick. And I just really, I wanted to figure it out, but I also didn't really want to know, but I knew that theater was magic and I wanted to be a part of that. Um, and that's actually one of the theaters that I ended up 
working for and uh, worked in their prop department for a couple years uh, before I moved to New York. Um, so they've been fantastic. Uh, and then also just as a little kid, I was always building like little dioramas and sewing costumes for my stuffed animals. Um, just always had some kind of art project going on. What was going on in your room? I remember there was something about what you did on the walls in your room. Uh, let's see. I did like Keith Haring figures as a border. <laughs> um, and then one of my walls is all cork board. So like I would put little kind of diorama thingies up on that also. That's awesome. When you look back at like your journey and like your process towards getting to where you are now, can you think of something that held you back or that you allowed that you saw as a roadblock before it was no longer a roadblock? Um, I think you and I were talking about like the concept of getting permission to be an artist and definitely I kind of just assumed that I would have a normal person job growing up. I mean, I was doing theater in high school and college, but there was still a time in college when I thought, well, I'm just going to be a lawyer because that's what grownups do. Like, Serious jobs. Yeah, that's, I mean, my dad and all of my parents' friends were lawyers, so I was like, well, that's just the thing. Um, and then for a while I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll go to law school and be a consultant for law and order because that would be the most fun version of going to law school. Um, but then when I was in college, actually, I had two different internships. Uh, during the summer and over breaks, I was interning in Minnesota at the attorney general's office in Minnesota. And then during the school year when I was in New York, I was interning for the Jim Henson company. So it was just like, well, I'm going to be either a lawyer or a puppeteer. And my dad was great. He was like, you don't want to be a lawyer. The world has enough lawyers. You should do something else. And I was like, I'm not sure you understand the something else is puppetry. But if, if you think, sure, okay. I love uh, your dad. <laughs> wow. yep, joked on him, became a puppeteer, but he was right. I didn't want to be a lawyer. No, I cannot envision you as a lawyer at all. Nah. Not really. So when did you first then go think to yourself, I, I, is that like when you said, I am an artist? Or was it? Kind of. I mean, labeling myself as an artist is still like, ooh, who do I think I am? Uh, I think it was just, I saw enough people do that job and make a living from it that I knew that that part was possible. That's awesome. And I guess, I can I call myself a builder rather than an artist. Um, yeah, even now that feels isn't that funny? I know it's like if you were a lawyer, you wouldn't be like, "Ooh, I'm all legal," but I'm you're like, no, you would just say you were a lawyer. Yeah, and yet. <laughs>
Um, it is the, the whole thing about declaring that you're an artist is very confronting, I think, mm -hmm. which is another yeah. thing about like waiting for permission. And actually when I was trying to figure out, uh, if I should go to Orvieto, um, just because at the time I was making puppet money and I was like, I'm not sure I can afford this. Uh, I called one of my mentors and he said, if you sign up for this, you are telling the world that you you are a writer and that is how you become a writer. Wow. So that was like, oh, those labels really do have power. Yeah, I remember when um, I was going to UCLA here um, in the early aughts and they, you know, they were talking about like, when do you declare that you're a writer? Like, when do you just say, I'm a writer? And, you know, it was that very confronting, like, oh, well, I have to wait till I've sold a script or, or at least won a contest or, or something. And then if so, I can't remember who was speaking, but they said, no, like, you have to declare that you're a writer and then act as if you're a writer. And then eventually all that stuff happens. Yeah. So which is still which I believe uh, Whoopi Goldberg addresses in Sister Act 2. Ah, yes, do tell. Uh, she is giving a speech to Lauren Hill, um, and she, I think, quotes some poet, and like, if you wake up in the morning and all you want to do is write, that means you're a writer. And tells Lauren Hill, like, if all you want to do in the morning is sing, that makes you a singer. Right. Well, I think following Whoopi Goldberg's advice in general is a good idea. So yeah, fair enough. Um, so, so winning Emmys, still <laughs> you question that you're an artist. That's actually, uh, so yeah, I have an Emmy for costume design and for writing, both of which are for Sesame Street. Um, but Emmys don't get rid of your imposter syndrome because actually a friend of mine asked like, oh, have you ever designed costumes? And my first instinct was like, oh, I'm, I'm not a costume designer. No, I can't. Uh, oh, well, okay, yeah, I guess, I guess I am an Emmy award winning costume designer, if you put it that way. Like, uh, so I guess, I, I guess that's my actual job is costume designer um and you're objectively good at it because they gave you a <laughs> statue for it but because I like don't sit down with a pen and paper and draw costumes like it just the mental image of what a costume designer is isn't my process at all right you're not so it just more of it occurred to me with the, my the gowns and yeah yeah I'm like I sit at a work desk and somebody tells me vague strokes of what they want for a puppet costume and then I go make it and that's costume design. I'm like, oh, amazing. So yeah, it can look many different ways. I know. And it's fascinating to me that like, it's, I think, good for us all to just kind of realize that it's, there's no magic tipping point. You know, you always will have that other self-doubt that other voice in the background going but are you really like it's Absolutely. not like you magically win an oscar and it's like well i'm done now i'm legit you guys <laughs> and i mean 
definitely I want to say too, the year that we won that Emmy for costume design uh, and definitely the year we won for writing, those were not the best years in my opinion. Like the season before in terms of costume design, like I made a couple things that I was so, so proud of and we didn't win that year, but then the next year we turned in some good stuff, but it wasn't like, oh my God, uh, that was the year we won. So I'm very, very grateful to have won, um, but it doesn't really feel like that necessarily is like the validation. I see. Like, yeah. I'm proud of it, but like I'm more proud of other work. Okay. So there's kind of a disconnect, if that makes sense. I mean, I think that's good though, because then it's like, don't, it's, it's not the awards that make you proud of your work. It's your work that makes you proud of your work. Exactly. And the best thing about having these Emmys is that it is only going to give me more opportunities in terms of being able to do good work on cool projects. Yeah. So now like you, then you moved out here. I like to think because of me. Um, and then you made the jump to TV writing, like non-puppet yeah. TV writing. Can you talk about <laughs> that a little bit? Like, what was that like? Uh, happened very quickly. Um, so the story was I had been writing for Sesame Street, um, but had gotten my manager through ATX and he connected me with an agent um, and they got me the opportunity to work on a CBS sitcom. Uh, and truly I had about 17 hours notice to move from New York to LA because I got the job offer and they were like, oh yeah, we'll start in a couple months. And then they were like, and by a couple months, we mean Monday. And that was Thursday and I was planning to go home to Minnesota that weekend. So like I was going to be leaving after work from work on Friday. So I had that amount of time. Um, so truly Heidi, if you didn't have a couch to offer me, I don't know what I would have done. Um, what but, was it like? walking into that room the first time and being like, I am now a writer in a writer's room. The first day I was like, I'm going to do such a good job. I am ready for this opportunity. I know what I'm doing because I'm a writer. And that was day one. And then uh, I fell apart and I stayed broken for about a year. Wow. <laughs> Can you talk it about was, that? Like, what, what was it that felt broken to you? Um, first of all, are we recording this? Is this getting posted afterwards? Great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Celebrate your comments accordingly. Indeed. Um, I just don't think I fit in socially with the group. Um, and also, like, it was, it was a hard room, I think um, by many accounts. Um, but yeah, I just felt like I was the nerdy puppet weirdo in 
Like I just felt like I was sitting at the wrong table in high school, you know? Well, and like uh, once like you I get was, that feeling, you can't shake it even if people are like, no, what are you talking about? You're at the table with us. Like, yeah, it doesn't go away that easily. Yeah. And I just, I definitely got in my head about it. Uh, so I didn't speak up as much as I, certainly as much as I do now. Um, and yeah, I wish that I had been braver that year, definitely. Um, though I am definitely proud of the work that I turned in and definitely I learned just so much, like the pace of it was so great and learning how to deal with that and just kind of come up with stories and jokes and know how to rewrite and emotionally to be okay to just like scrap everything. Uh, that has just been incredibly helpful. I bet. That's what, one of the next questions I was going to ask you is like, what's, what do you think is like this one or the, some of the most valuable lessons as a writer you learned from being in that writer's room? Um, basically knowing how to get in there and participate because being in a writer's room, that experience is so different from the actual sitting and writing. Hmm. Um, Cause like when you're just at home by yourself and with your computer, you can spend all the time in the world that you want. You know, you can just try things and, you know, rearrange as much as you want. It's all in your little world, but there's such a performative aspect about being in the room and that room in particular, like people like to pitch jokes in character voices and that made me really nervous. So there were characters that I would have jokes for, but I'm like, I can't do that voice. So I'm just probably not gonna. Wow. Um, yeah. That's and that's a lot of pressure. It was intense and not every room is like that. Um, and definitely I have learned that like every room experience is completely different. Um, but again, just like knowing how to jump in and kind of read room etiquette also is really important, especially because dynamics are so different from room to room. Yeah. Cause now you've been in, in other rooms, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I, after this show moved to Helpsters, which is another puppet preschool room. Um, and now I'm working on a new Marvel cartoon for Disney. Um, so yeah, those are, each one has been very, very different. I hear there might be a future for that franchise. Marvel, I think, yeah. yeah. We'll see. They're scrappy. <laughs> they're, the, they're the little underdog. They'll come through. Yep. <laughs> um, what's, so what, like, what was the most amazing thing about working at Sesame? I just would love to hear more about that. I still love Sesame so much. And like, definitely with all jobs, there's stuff that you don't love so much. Um, but the people that I've worked with there, I have been working with a lot of them since I was 19 years old, wow. which is 
officially half my life. Um, uh, my puppet mentor is Marty Robinson, who is Mr. Snuffleupagus. And yeah, he's been taking care of me since I was 19. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and just all the other builders have been my family. Um, that's so special. Like, I don't think a lot of writers get that experience where you've got, yeah. like, they'll always have your back no matter how many sitcoms or superhero things you do or don't do. Yep. That's really exciting. Yeah. And in addition to that, like Sesame is very mission driven and everybody really truly believes in that mission. You know, we are making kids smarter, stronger, kinder. Um, and that's also kind of generally what I love about working for children's television too, is like, you know that what you're doing is putting something good into the world, or at least that is your aim. Yes, yes. What is, so, what is the, uh, like, what's the best piece of advice from, that you've gotten in a writer's room? Uh, probably have the confidence of a mediocre white man. <laughs> I truly believe that. Um, yeah, and I think just kind of, I guess, be fearless or like, don't shy away from saying your thing. Yeah. Um, and also don't get too married to anything. Like be prepared to kill your babies. That's I think really important just as like, like this is a bit tangential, but when I was learning to knit, I went to Ireland and had my aunt there teach me how to knit. And um, she taught me how to do a little bit and I did, and then she made me take it apart. And I was like, no, I want to hold on to this because it's the first thing I ever knitted and it's so special. And I spent all this time and she's like, nope, pull it out, pull it out. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh. but it was a really good lesson. And just like, don't get attached. Nothing is precious. You know, don't pretzel yourself for a joke that might not be the right joke in the end anyway, or whatever. Yep. Um, what's so springboarding off that? Well, what's the worst piece of advice you've ever gotten in a room? Um, or the worst direction or note? Well, this isn't like particular to a writer's room. It's maybe it's actually a little too specific to my career because I perform and build and write and several people have told me like, well, you really kind of have to choose one of those things and just do that one thing. Um, and I fully reject that, uh, and recommend that other people fully reject it. Like definitely the thing that you're working on, focus on and be where you are. But if you also are passionate about other things, like those are, those become items in your toolbox that are very special to you. So why would you, why would you try to clear that out? You know? I've never understood that way of thinking that whole, like you have to pick a lane and stay in it because yeah. as an, as an, as a writer, I've taken 
acting classes just so I understand more of what it's like to be an actor. So I understand how the actor's gonna process the pages. I know we have Jeff and Ellen in here who are both actors and writers and directors, you know, and I feel like it all, like you're saying, it all helps expand your toolkit. So why would you not do more than one thing? Yeah. And, and definitely like make sure that you are clear about your intentions. So it's not just like, oh, I kind of do this and I kind of do that. Like definitely be an actor and be a writer and be a builder, but don't just kind of like flow in between, but like do those things with intention. I think that's, that's a really good thing to intentionality. Um, mm. Because you've taken control of your career in a way that I find really brave. And you know, when it's like, what's funny is this is all goes back. We do these, the character exercises about like, what do you most admire in a, another person? And you know, you were talking earlier about like finding bravery and it's like, but that's you. Like you are that thing, which is of course the point of the character exercises. You are the thing you most admire. Like that you didn't know you had it in you the whole time. Um, <laughs> and that's like, you know, to just go after moving to a different city, then moving to another city, then leaving a job that was really comfortable and really seemed like your happiness to come out here. Like that's really brave. Uh, well, I've also had everybody supporting me in these decisions. And so they were risks certainly, but definitely I have always had safety nets. That's important. And, and encouragement. And yeah. you know, everybody at Sesame was really excited for me to kind of make the move and made it as easy as possible. And like definitely let me come back whenever I have breaks and they've all been fantastic. I love that. Um, do you want to talk at all about being a writer of color in the room? Yeah. Uh, What's that been like, Liz? <laughs> it's a thing. It's always, it's always going to be a thing. Um, I was the only person of color on the CBS show, was also the only person of color for a while on Helpsters. Sesame, I think. I'm pretty sure I'm the first Asian woman to write for them. Wow. Um, and they're definitely like, they're working on being more diverse. The Marvel show now is actually the most diverse, which oh, cool. is great. The co-showrunners are both white, but um, the three staff writers are all women of color. And it is it's always hard because you do kind of have to represent everybody and especially for a low-level writer that's really tough because you don't want to be the POC police and you don't really have the social standing to kind of like interject with problems but that is the role that you are cast in. Yeah, I was gonna ask if that's like, do you find that you're, you're the cultural sensitivity check or do people run things by you? Like, oh, hey, you would know, or? Sometimes, um, and yeah, 
Heidi and I were talking about an instance where they were kind of debating um, a character that they were like, oh, the optics of making this, we wanted to make the show diverse, but the optics of making this character a black kid, oh, we're not so comfortable with. So it's just easier to make him white. And it's just like, okay, well, we actually have other options between a black person and a white person. Like, they're all different kinds of people that this character could be. Often, um, in most of the shows I've worked on, uh, everybody really is making an honest effort to show diversity. Um, but I've also seen it happen often that people are scared of making missteps. So they kind of just like, oh, we just can't really, we're worried about showing the wrong thing. So we'll just default to basic white culture. Right. Well, there is, I know as a white woman, like there's a certain amount of like, is this my story to tell? Mm -hmm. And then there's like, who, who, which toes am I stepping on? Um, and you know, I've really tried to push for like, you know, not that I have the power to do an inclusivity writer, but just looking at my own work and just making sure that not the characters aren't all white or they aren't all straight or they aren't all cis or, or able-bodied or whatever, you know, just trying to at least be aware of it, I feel like is a step forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it is tough because when on the executive side and on the writer side, like all the creative and development people, if they're all white, like, or overwhelmingly, those are the stories that are going to be told. So by the time you are hiring actors, like, that's not the time to be addressing this problem. Right. Like, you got to start on the, at the very base level. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. I just finished uh, Naomi McDougal Jones's book about that. Um, and, and she talks a lot about like how the, it's the, it's a problem from up here. That's like the gatekeepers are, are resonating with pictures that and projects that they see themselves in. So it's like, well, that's great, yeah. but that's part of why Oscar's so white. Yeah. And then especially with executives too, because we'll get notes on things and like, we'll try to put in culturally specific elements, but if all the executives are white, they'll come back and be like, oh, this doesn't really feel relatable. Or is this a thing that people really understand? And you're like, oh, yeah, this whole entire population of people that eat this thing. Yeah. Well, you know about my project with um, with a woman of color about a black surfer girl because my partner on that is a black surfer girl. So we wrote about it and um, it went up the flagpole at uh, Amazon and the notes we got back were, can she be white? So no, she, she can't. <laughs> we're not doing Gidget. So, so yeah. Um, so I, I only, I have like one more question for you and then I feel like we can open it up to questions from the, the, uh, I would say the audience, the participants, the, the group here. Um, what is your inspiration process? Like when you, 
you know, we all have a million ideas as writers. Like what's, what is it for you where you go, that's the one I'm going to pull out of the ether and actually sit down and write on, write this project. I, w I know I want to do this. Um, a lot of it is like, I will fall in love with a character that I have in mind. Um, and very often for me, those characters are based on my family. Uh, so yeah, kind of once I, once I latch onto that, then I just kind of start spinning stories around that world. Um, and that's usually my jumping off point. Good. Yeah. Cause I know it's like, you know, when you're sitting down, I have a million ideas a day, of course, like I'm sure we all do, but then it's like, when you sit down to write something, you're going to be spending a while with these people and you better like yeah. them. So what's that like writing stuff based on family? Um, that has been, okay. So I, I will talk about this project. Heidi knows all about it. Um, I'm trying to pitch a show that is based on my family's stories set in the Japanese internment camps. Um, so my process for that has been a lot of interviewing family members and just kind of collecting family stories. And that has been just the most exciting project for me because really what it is is me sitting around hearing all these great kind of hilarious family stories and that's my favorite way of interacting with my relatives um growing up it was always just my grandmother and her little sister and sometimes her brothers would come into town everybody would just sit around the table and just shoot the shit and oh remember this remember this time like and everybody was always just laughing. So getting to mine those for stories has just been incredible. And there are some incredible stories that I've heard. Uh, I can't remember if I told you, um, I just talked to my great aunt Virginia and she said that one of the barracks at her camp was unoccupied um, and so the kids just took it over and turned it into an indoor ice skating rink in the winter. And I was just like, you guys just don't know how to be bored. That's incredible. I just thought it was hilarious. And that's the kind of thing where it's like, if you had just imagined that and written it in a World War II internment camp drama, people would have been like, no, no, that's going too far afield. You're being ridiculous now. Yep. <laughs> God. But, but that's what I love. And I can see like, that's what I'm excited for this project. And because it's, you know, it's the irrepressibility of the human spirit. Like yeah. they, here these people are proud American citizens being told, ah, actually, no, you're not. We're going to stick you in these crappy camps. And they're like, all right, how do we make this all right? And just yep. carry on. And I think that's, I think that is, there's that, that, axiom of screenwriting the more specific you make it the more universal it is you know and so it's like yep. this is so specific and it's like who can't relate to that kind of human spirit overcoming whatever oppression and hatred and, and vileness so I love it yeah and especially in our present situation 
How yeah. do you create community and find joy and happiness when you are trapped somewhere? Yes. For an oh. indefinite amount of time. Yay. Speaking of being trapped, um, <laughs> what is your recommendation for binge watching right now? Um, okay. So I just got BritBox. So I am just deep, deep into all the Jane Austens and all the British murder dramas. Um, Cold Blood on BritBox was great. Um, but also I started watching again, uh, Kim's Convenience on Netflix. I don't Have you seen that at all? It's so charming. Uh, it's, it's a Canadian sitcom about, a Korean Canadian family and uh, the relationship between the dad and daughter feels feels real very familiar nice. I love it very very great I had a qu- I had a thing about binging that I was going to ask oh um how are you feeling uh better um yeah I slept for about four days and I took a real quick nap before this me too uh, <laughs> but definitely like every day stronger just just a little a little touch of the covid coming through there yep um so yeah that's you were the first person that i know that i know know that got mm-hmm. it and um i'm very happy that you're okay <laughs> i mean it's weird because like i didn't i haven't been tested so i'm not 100 percent sure but like i don't know what else this would be yeah yeah no it sounds like i mean it sounds from everything you said about the symptoms and stuff um and right as we were texting about it earlier another friend of mine just texted me going guess what i just got tested and i have it and i was like what and she just lives um like a mile up the road from me so yeah i'm like do you need anything i will drop it off outside your house and walk away (laughs) walk back slowly away so um i think that's you know a little bit shocking though the shocking part of all this is that it is just like it's here yeah I have the a question. is already inside the house sorry carlo <laughs> hi liz i'm glad you're feeling better hey thanks what's up um I'm curious to know, I mean, you've been very successful as a writer. Um, you've, you've, it's been a wonderful to watch your career grow. I'm curious to know what in the writing process do you personally find most challenging? Like, what's the one thing that you hate doing and how, what are your techniques for managing that and overcoming that? Um, definitely... I mean, the hardest part is just like, uh, doing it. But um, often you get a lot of notes and you don't always agree with them. Um, sometimes, uh, not on my current project, certainly, but sometimes you get notes that you hate just with every fiber of your being um but you have to incorporate them because that is your job and so i think the trick to it really is to remember that when you have a job writing for television 
you are not writing your show, you are writing their show. And it is your job to make it as great as possible. Um, so you take their note because that is their vision and you just, you make it work and you find some way to fall in love with it and you can take it and just kind of yes and it. And you're just like, okay, I know that this is what they're going for, but what if I took it and like added this little physical gag to it to make it like kind of pop? Um, and that's just you doing a good job. Like, even if the thing you're writing, you're like, this feels stupid. It is you doing a good job because that is the script that they want, that they are looking for. So just give it the best polish you can and just find a way to love it. We, we talk about like finding the note behind the note. And that sounds like that's along those lines of like, if someone gives you a dumb, stupid note that you don't want to follow, you have to dig underneath and like, why are they bumping on this? Why did they give me this note and try to make it work? Yeah. Um, I thought of something else too, while we were talking, because when we talked about what we wanted to call this chat, you were talking about um, the necessity of failure. Mm -hmm. So can you say a little bit more about how that has fit, figured into your journey? Yeah, um, I definitely believe in celebrating failure because I think that is like the hallmark of the creative process. And I've seen so many people get stymied in creative projects because they're so not willing to fail that they just kind of, they don't move forward. They're like, oh, it could be this, but if I make the wrong decision, then I don't know. So I'm just not even gonna try. And that's always so much worse because if you do something and it doesn't work, then at least you have something that you can get feedback on, that you can workshop, that you can like rework, but you just have to accept that that's gonna happen. and the less personally you take it and just kind of accept it and even celebrate it, the easier your creative life is going to be by so much. Um, and I have talked about this before and I kind of equate it to like kids building uh, towers with blocks. You know, they build up and they build up and they get it as tall as they can. And when that tower topples, they just, everybody, you know, gets so excited because that's the loudest, most exciting part. And nobody is just like, oh, you little idiots, you just failed at building a tall tower. No, they're like, cool, we learned, you know, that's, that's how tall we can make it. So kind of approaching failure is like, okay, now I know what that outer limit is. That's great. I just learned a thing. And that's what failure is, is like a step in the learning process. I think that's great. And it's also that, for me, it's that concept of you were, it, it, the fact that you failed in the room, you, the thing to remember is that you got in the room in the first place in order to fail, which is like, that's already a hallmark of success. You know, like I keep, that's my thing is like, we keep looking around going, 
right, this is what success looks like. Like, it's not what I thought it would look like. And it's not where I necessarily, you know, perfectly in a perfect world want to be, but this is what success looks like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of my puppeteering career, there was like one month where I had all these auditions and like got rejected from every single one. But instead of feeling terrible about it, I was like, oh my God, I am being rejected from projects that I would never have been on the list for two years ago. And so that is like a measure of success is like, are you failing at higher and higher levels? Yeah, I, we just got um, we just got through the first couple levels of the Sundance Directors Lab, and then we got rejected, so we didn't get to go to the lab. But I'm like, we made it like through at least a rejection from Sundance. Like that's that's yeah, cool. that is a big deal. Yeah, so failing in higher levels that is what we're aspiring to. Absolutely, I will and be like, happy to lose my Oscar if it means I got nominated. <laughs> Sorry, what did you say? I talked over you. You never, the rejection never stops. Like even people that have sold a million shows on television still have other ideas that get rejected often, more often. So it's not like, oh, now that I got this one mark of success, I'm, I'm done. Never going to fail again. No, you're going to keep failing. You just have to keep doing work. Congratulations, you're gonna keep failing. Yep. <laughs> um, to me, that also goes back to what you were saying earlier about bravery. You know, it's just like, if you can find within yourself that seed of bravery to know it's, it's fine, you're gonna keep failing and it's fine. And you need to be bold and trust that you have something worthwhile saying. Um, Andrea, or Andrea, I see you have your, you have a hand raised. Um, can you unmute yourself and ask, say your piece? Sure, thanks. Um, so I have a question for you. I'm curious about, um, if you could just share a few things, Liz, about what makes a good room? Like, you know, what are some of the elements that like, when you look back and say, you know, here's why I felt free in that room, or here's why that room worked so well, or this is why I want to work with this showrunner again. Like, what are some of those elements? Great question. Um, the showrunners I have for this Marvel show, Kate Condell and Jeff Howard, are so great. I love them so much. Uh, and what makes this room particularly incredible, at least for me, um, is they have a very clear vision of what they want the show to be. So like, there's a clear goal. We know what we're working towards. Um, and they're also just so appreciative of all of our efforts. They've been very clear about that. And um, they also, like the first week, they told us why they were so excited about this project and everybody else from the creative team also came on and talked about basically how like all of their life stories led up to this moment and this project. And it just like, it makes you buy into their dreams so fully. Uh, so all I want is to do a great job on this show and 
because I know what the show is, I feel like I can do a great job on the show. And I feel like my efforts are appreciated. Um, so definitely uh, those are all qualities that given the chance, I would love to have in myself as a showrunner. Um, another great thing, uh, my showrunner for Helpsters, Tim McKeown, also a phenomenal human. Uh, he was great in that whenever he made changes to a script, he was very clear about why he made changes. He was like, okay, this thing you did, thought it was very funny, uh, but because of this particular circumstance, we're gonna go in this direction instead. Does that make sense to you? Great, then let's do it. Um, because the rewriting process is always gonna be part of it. Showrunners are always going to change your work and that's fine, but knowing the reason makes it feel safe mm -hmm. and makes you be able to hit the target next time. Can you also say it? That was really helpful. Thank you. Can you also say something about, because I'm assuming you're still writing right now, right? The room is happening. So yeah. how has that, I don't know how much time we have. So if, if we don't have time for a question, please let me know. <laughs> okay, cool. But can you talk about the, what the process is like now during COVID and everybody being isolated? Uh, it's, we have meetings on Zoom. It is very much like this. Um, and we actually weren't in the room like every day breaking stories. Um, in this instance, uh, we just kind of like, we broke our stories and then we'd get notes and then work independently. So that's still kind of going on. Um, so I'll, you know, take a day to write an outline, turn it in, get my notes back, and then I'll have, you know, just a phone call with the showrunners to do notes. Um, and then we'll do like weekly creative notes over Zoom meetings. Um, but then also I was working on a freelance show this morning and we were doing like a full writer's summit through Zoom. Um, so it really was kind of the same as a regular writer's room. It's just now you really have to be intentional and like unmute yourself to jump in there with your idea. So it takes an extra bit of confidence to be like, this is, this is a good enough joke that I'm going to hit a button. <laughs> That's great. And it's like, what I'm hearing is um, what makes a great room is communication, clarity of vision and respect. Kindness. Yeah. It doesn't seem like that should be so hard. <laughs> and definitely like if the people in charge love the project it makes the project better like I think that passion is always going to be sticky yeah and that always blows my mind too because it's like there's so many of us here who would love to be in that position but the thought that there's people in those running those rooms that don't love it and don't I'm just like oh my god please then let us step aside I'll be right there <laughs> Let's see, anybody else have a question? Lee, are you waving your hand wildly? Yeah, I forgot I was on mute. So I'm curious as far as like, how did the Sesame Street writer's room work? And 
it's been a long time since I've seen Sesame Street, but I remember it kind of having like sketch it, like skits. And then I also remember there kind of being a narrative, but did every episode have its own like self-contained story to it? And how did that go? How did you go about doing that? So the structure and the structure has changed a lot in the last couple of years. Um, but it's, I think they originally called it like a magazine style show because there's the street story, which is like one full narrative story. And then there'll be like little segments like Elmo's world and monster foodies. Um, but in terms of writing the street stories, uh, we actually start every season with a curriculum meeting and we have experts in the educational field come and talk. Um, and what we're doing now is uh, kind of uh, like inspiring curiosity and more the learning process. Um, that's our focus this season. Uh, so we start with that and then the room of writers gets together and we're given a list of curriculum topics like okay. water or libraries or sports or uh, lizards and the writers kind of dibs the ones that they like. Then we get a list of curriculum things that we need to hit within our topic, then we come to the head writer with our story ideas, um, and that all happens now independently. And then, it, yeah, so it's not really a room after that point. It's just like a lot of back and forth with the head writer and curriculum. Okay, okay, thanks. Yeah, Holly, what were you gonna ask? Um, I think you might need to unmute yourself first yes i just wanted to make a, a comment actually i just wanted to tell liz how excited i am of her idea of her project doing the um internment uh i my very first best friend was um uh japanese american and her family had been in internment she hadn't because she was born after that but um but i knew her parents and heard a few of their stories but i just think the specificity that I've never seen that the interior of that world and that life treated with respect and done as story. And I'm so excited to, to when it comes out really, really excited. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's something that I am really passionate about and definitely want to show like the full complexity of how terrible it was and everything that led up to it. Um, but also I think that television is so amazing in that we can teach empathy. Like we can make you see these people as humans and like fully loving complex human beings um, instead of this kind of abstract other. And I think it makes a difference in the world and how we treat people. I agree. I think it's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? I think that's that's a great note to end on. If no oh. one has anything, oh, what? Carlo just raised his hand. That guy. <laughs> what do you need to say, Carlo? 
No, I just wanted to know when we will see uh, uh, a crazy puppet show starring uh, President Taft. When when is that going to happen? Ah, who knows, man. <laughs> I love that script so much. <laughs> One of these days. It's funny, they keep trying to make it political, and I'm like, just because it's about presidents, it's I'm not making a comment. Like, these guys are just assholes. Yeah, it's it's such a funny script. It's a fun project. It's one of those like it'll go into the what there's like that mysterious file somewhere in Hollywood of the best un, unproduced scripts ever and like every <laughs> year it's like it should just go in there. Or we could do a table read of it. We did a table read for it uh in New York a couple years ago and my friend John Hoche was Teddy Roosevelt and he is just so perfect. Like, I thought it was funny on the page, but then when he did it, I was like, I don't even, this isn't even mine anymore. Like, this is just the John Ho show. That's great. He was so good. That's one thing, one thing I love about writing, just in general, is that it's not just ours. It's, mm -hmm. it's this weird process where we're creating a thing that is going to then be collaborated with with actors and directors and and all the craftspeople that come in after we're done with our part and it's mm -hmm. it's bizarre and it's magic and I love it. Yeah. Well, Liz, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming out coming out uh, even though you're in um, <laughs> when you're not, not haven't been feeling very well. Um, I'm so happy that you have survived. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Um, Thank you. Thank you. This has been Thank really fun. I hope you found Liz inspiring. Join us next week for our Hearthside Salon with Sarah Yeomans, a professor and archaeologist specializing in medicine and healthcare in the ancient world. She'll talk about what historical pandemics can teach us about the COVID-19 crisis. And fun fact, a conversation with Sarah is the reason we started Hearthside Salons in the first place, so don't miss it. For more on our script coaching, online concept to pages writing courses, and writing retreats in Italy, someday again, check out pagecraftwriting.com. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft and thanks for listening.